Good morning. It's good to be with you in this beautiful Wednesday morning at Sterling College. So we are a college. Curious, how many of you have learned something already today? Show of hands. Two people. All right. So we're going to get interactive a little bit later on. Hopefully we'll have a bit better participation then. Uh, or else that's an indictment on how we're doing faculty. So maybe we should pick it up. Uh, but when I was in college, I learned a lot of really important things. Uh, I learned when you make spaghetti, you need to drain the grease out of the beef before you add the tomato sauce. That's a big one. Uh, I learned how to salsa dance. It still pays off on date night sometimes. And I learned when you show up at the salsa club, if the bouncer doesn't like your shoes, he can charge you 20 extra bucks to get in. Uh, not a very fun lesson. Um, but I'd like to start my sermon off this morning with a more important lesson that I learned back when I was in college at the University of North Carolina. And it's a lesson that helps us understand what it means to love our neighbor. And like all good college stories, this one begins in a Walmart. So I'm in Walmart. I've just gotten a lot of snack food that I'm buying to stock up my dorm with. And I've just started paying, pulled out my debit card, put it into the payment machine. And I feel somebody standing uncomfortably close right next to me as I'm punching in my PIN number. And this makes me nervous because you don't want to share your PIN number because it's that safety wall between all my money and whoever this is standing here. So I turn around anxiously right beside me, about five foot six tall, is a roughly 50-year-old black man with a giant smile on his face. And he says, hey, do you remember me? And it takes me a second, but I think back about six months before where I'd been up on Franklin Street, University of North Carolina. That's the equivalent of our Broadway street. Uh, Broadway Avenue, um, and I'd met this man, let's call him Patrick, to preserve his identity, and he'd asked me for some money to buy dinner. And I didn't have any cash, but I bought him a burrito and sat down and ate with him, and got to hear about how he was homeless and the various struggles that had led him to this point in his life. Here he is standing uncomfortably close to me right here six months later, and I ask him how he's doing, and he tells me things are great. He's turned a corner. He just got off of his shift working at Walmart, and he thinks he's going to make it, but he wants to know if he can have one more favor. So I ask him what he needs, and he explains that he still doesn't have a car. He's taking the bus to the Walmart from downtown Chapel Hill every day, and it's pouring rain outside. And the bus stop doesn't have a roof over it, and he doesn't want to get soaked. Could he catch a ride back to town? So I had space, only a couple of friends with me. I said, sure. He climbed in. We started the seven-minute voyage back to downtown Chapel Hill. About halfway through this trip, he asked me if I can stop at a, at a grocery store that we're passing. And I think, stop for groceries? We just left Walmart. Why didn't you get your groceries there? But I remember Jesus said, if somebody asks you to go one mile, you need to be willing to go two miles. That's what it means to love your neighbor. So I said, sure. I stopped, I pulled in, and I prepared to wait as he ran in and did a full grocery run. But instead, he came out pretty quickly with a single bag that he dropped in my lap. And I looked down, and right there was a pack of ribeye steaks. He said, you bought me a meal. I want to return the favor. Here's a meal for you. So I thanked him, and I finished the trip back to Chapel Hill. Asked him where he wanted me to drop him off. He said, you know, I've already inconvenienced you enough. It stopped raining. Just drop me off here. I'll walk the last couple blocks to where I'm staying. So I let him out. I took my friends back to their dorm room, and I went out, and I met another friend for dinner at a restaurant. Stepped up to the counter, placed my order, 
probably because I can't cook spaghetti, I have to depend on restaurants, um, and place my order, pull out my wallet to pay, and I look down and I notice my debit card is not in the slot where I normally have it. And immediately it hits me, Patrick probably saw me punch in my PIN number. More than that, Patrick asked me to drop him off about two blocks from my bank, and that was 20 minutes ago. And I began to wonder if Patrick had even bought me those stakes with my own debit card so that he would know whether or not the PIN number worked. I thought, is this what I get for trying to love my neighbor? Is this what loving your neighbor looks like? We're going to come back to that story, so I want you to remember it. Don't forget it. But before I do, I want to tell you a different story, and this one is from the Bible. It's a story Jesus tells that helps us understand how to love our neighbor. And it begins in Luke chapter 10. And in this story, Jesus radically changes our understanding of what loving, loving your neighbor means. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Luke 10 with me. I'll assume those of you on your phones, that's what you're doing. Everybody else is going to be up here on the screen. So Luke 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And when we say lawyer here, it doesn't mean an ambulance chaser. A lawyer in this time period is someone who has come to master the Old Testament laws. They completely understand what God wants from us in terms of ethics, and because of that, this individual would be highly respected in the Jewish community. So verse, verse 26, Jesus replies to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Many of us in here probably knew the answer to that question. And Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, verse 29, the lawyer, deciding to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That's kind of strange. Why is he wanting to justify himself? I think it's something like this. He asked an easy question. Every faithful Jewish person in the first century as part of their daily routine would recite that commandment because it was the most important. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Anybody could answer that. So when he asks Jesus this question, Jesus flips it back and has the lawyer answer for him. And I imagine it's something like my friend Billy, who's a huge basketball fan and an even bigger Michael Jordan fan, dreamed his whole life about meeting Michael Jordan and knew exactly what he was going to say on the day that he met Jordan. But then one day, the University of North Carolina happened to bump into Michael Jordan after a basketball game. The only thing that came out of his mouth is, you're Michael Jordan. <laughs> He said, I blew it. I missed my hero. I didn't say anything intelligent to him. And I think right here, something like that is happening to this lawyer. He's met the man that everybody is saying is the Messiah. And instead of asking a good question, he asks an easy one that anybody should be able to answer. So he's trying to cover for it, and he asks a better question. Who's my neighbor? And it's this question that Jesus really gives him a rewarding answer to. And it's this question that will challenge our understanding of what it means to love our neighbor. Keep reading with me in verse 30. Jesus replied with a story many of us have heard. A man was going down from Jerusalem 
to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, top in the religious authority in Israel, but when he saw him, he passed by and went on the other side of the road. So likewise, a Levite, a representative from the only tribe that could have priests come out of it, the holiest of tribes, this Levite saw the man and passed on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, and he took care of him, pouring oil and wine on them. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn to take care of him. And the next day he took out two coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of this man, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus replied, you go and do likewise. Now there are many facets of this story that we could pay attention to. This could be many different sermons on top of one another. But today I want to focus on one particular point to help us understand what it means to love our neighbor. And that's the fact that a Samaritan is the center of this story. Now, we may today not be very clear on what a Samaritan is, but this is really significant in the first century. I have to go back in time a little bit to explain. Several centuries before Jesus told this story, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two different kingdoms, a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom never worshipped God in the way he commanded now, in fairness, the southern kingdom didn't get it right very often either, but because of the sins of this northern kingdom, there was a big religious difference between these groups. And God sent a group known as the Assyrians, the most powerful army at that time, to come in and wipe out the northern kingdom. And Assyria took most of those Israelites from the northern kingdom and dispersed them around the Mediterranean. And then they took peoples from other conquered areas and settled them in what used to be the northern kingdom. And because of this, we see that by the first century, many Jewish figures thought of the Samaritans as a different people group, as a different ethnic group, as no longer part of the family of God. For example, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, believed that the Samaritans were descendants of one relocated group known as the Cutheans. And so he tended to call the Samaritans by that name, as if they were a different people group. Jesus himself, in Matthew 10, verses 5 through 6, tells his disciples, go and preach the gospel to all the villages of Israel, but don't go into the communities of the Samaritans. Jesus himself recognizing that they are different people groups. Now we don't see any hatred from Jesus toward the Samaritans, but we do among many Jews of the first century. Some Jewish texts speak in a very derogatory, cruel, or hateful manner of the Samaritans. They're called fools. They're called idolaters. One text even says you can kill a Samaritan and God will approve of it. We have a ruling 
from a first century court case where rabbis decide that daughters of Samaria, any woman born of a Samaritan, is unclean from birth. So they can never even serve food or drink to someone who is Jewish. This is the context in which Jesus is telling this story. Because many Jews hated Samaritans. They were prejudiced toward them to the point where if they were traveling and they came to Samaria, they would go around so that they didn't have to pass through their land. So for a Samaritan to care for an injured traveler coming from Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish community, is a huge deal. He's crossing a major social barrier to show love to somebody. But let's not pick on Jewish prejudice here, because we all have our Samaritans. We all have those groups that we might be tempted to look down on or that we might refuse to associate with in a social setting. So we're going to come back to that in a minute. For now, I want to draw a lesson from what we've talked about in this story so far, and I call it the Samaritan test. If you want to know if you love your neighbor, you've got to pass this test, and it consists of two parts. Each one I've put in the form of a question. So first part, first question, will you perform specific actions of love even across major social boundaries? Will you care for someone from a different nationality? Will you care for someone who speaks a different language? Will you care for someone who has a different sexual orientation than you? If you can't answer yes to that question, you are not loving your neighbor. The Samaritan can answer yes. He is willing to serve and care for a Jewish man who has been robbed and beaten in specific ways. This is not abstract theory in his head. He provides first aid, he takes him to safety, and he provides money for his care. Specific actions. And some of you here might be saying, hold on. You said Jesus is going to radically challenge me on what it means to love your neighbor. This isn't radical. I know not to be racist. I know not to be prejudiced. We're in a post-Martin Luther King Jr. world, right? Maybe back in the first century this is a big deal, but not today. We know this. But I've got news for you. This was not new in Jesus' day. We can look back in the Old Testament and see commandments where the Jews knew that they were supposed to be doing this. Put two up on the screen here, and there could be many more. Deuteronomy 10, 19. Love the sojourner. Or we could translate it, love the foreigner, therefore, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 37, love, or sorry, do not despise an Edomite, for he is your brother. This different ethnic group, the Edomites, Israel is supposed to treat them as brothers, as part of the same family. And people in the first century weren't doing that. But I've got more news for you. For some of you, it's not news, but our culture in this country today isn't necessarily doing much better in that area. And I know this in part because of some of the work I've been able to do as a member of the diversity initiative on campus. That's given me the opportunity to sit down with some of you and hear your stories as you've been at Sterling College. And some of you have had a great experience and no problems, and I praise God for that. But there are other people here who have been told they are not welcome in this community 
by other folks in the town or maybe even in the college because of the way that they look, because of the language that they speak. They've been told to go back where they came from. They have been ridiculed because of their physical appearance, because they're a different ethnicity than the person who is being insulting. And so I know this happens here. And I want to say, if you're here today and someone has refused to take specific actions to show you love because of the way that you look, or if they've taken specific actions of hatred toward you, Jesus here shows that this is contrary to the heart of Christianity. Summarizing Christianity can be summed up in part with the idea of loving God. Jesus is there included as our divine Savior, but also loving your neighbor. And Jesus illustrates that you can't do that if you won't love somebody who's different from you. So that's part one of the Samaritan test. You want to love your neighbor, cross that social boundary with specific actions. But that's only part one. We've got a second part. And to illustrate it, I want to come back to that story about Patrick that I told. So here's where we get interactive a little bit, a chance to wake up slightly. What had I just found out in this story about my interaction with Patrick? Somebody shout it out. I don't, I don't have my debit card. What did somebody over here say? Patrick stole my debit card. Okay. Uh, so show of hands, if you're paying attention, if you think Patrick stole my debit card, is that where we left off? Okay, like three people, which is more than we had for people who've learned things today. So <laughs> it's a good sign. Uh, so it seems like Patrick stole my debit card. I've got to tell you, I know I set you up a little bit there, but that is in fact false. As the story concludes, it turns out that is not at all what happened, because the first thing I did is pick up my phone and call my bank and say, I need to cancel my card, I think it's been stolen. And then I asked them to check my balance. I was worried that the little bit of money I had in there was drained, and my Friday nights were going to get a whole lot more boring. Um, every penny was there. On top of that, there was no record of stakes being bought on my debit card, so that suspicion was false. And then to my shame, the next day, I found my card in the wallet in the wrong spot. You see, I was nervous when somebody was standing so close to me when I'm making payments, and I put it back in the wrong place quickly so that he wouldn't see my PIN number or be able to get my card, and I didn't realize it. And I immediately jumped to this conclusion when it was gone that he must have stolen me. And I had to stop and say, what was it that made me assume that this man stole from me? Could it be that I was prejudiced against him because he was homeless? Oh, the defense mechanisms came up. I can't be classist. I can't be prejudiced against people who are poor. I spend my summers working in a warehouse, making low wages with other people who are poor. We're all friends. I can't be classist. I'm willing to sit down and buy a meal for a homeless man that I just met on Franklin Street. I can't be classist. I don't care about money. I came to college to be a lawyer, and now I want to be a theologian. And friends, there's not big money in that. I can't be prejudiced against people who are poor. And then I thought, well, maybe, maybe it's because he's a different race than me. Am I prejudiced against people who aren't white? No, no, no. More defense mechanisms come up. I can't be racist. The first date I ever went on was with a black woman. I can't be racist. 
my best friend in high school was a Chinese immigrant. I can't be racist. I've never used the N-word. I don't think mean thoughts about people who are a different race from me. I'm not racist. I'm not classist. Look at all the nice things I'm doing for people who are different than me. But I learned that day that you can take specific actions of love towards someone across a major social barrier. You can buy a homeless man a burrito. You can give money to someone of a different economic class than you. You can tutor someone who speaks a different language than you. You can be a generous and kind friend to someone of a different ethnicity. You can even have a girlfriend or boyfriend of a different race than you, and that doesn't guarantee that you are loving your neighbor. You can still fall short there. The reason for this is illustrated in the second aspect of what I'm calling the Samaritan test. We have to ask the question, are we willing to recognize that God has chosen someone from across a major social boundary to be the center of God's work. You see, I was in a place mentally where a homeless man like Patrick played two roles in a story. Either he was the recipient of charity from someone like me who was the hero, or he was the villain. He revealed some sin that showed why he had wound up being homeless. But the truth is, in this story, Patrick was the hero and I'm the villain. Patrick is the one that had turned his life around, gotten a job, and was making improvements. Patrick is the one that repaid my kindness with even greater kindness. Patrick is the one that never revealed that he showed any condescension toward me. And I'm the one that showed that deep down, so deep I wasn't even aware of it, I thought I was better than him and I never fully trusted him. And he's the hero of this story. Jesus does the same thing in this story to the Samaritan. He's talking to a lawyer, an elite member of the Jewish community, and he makes this lawyer admit that the Samaritan is his moral example. The Samaritan, across that social boundary where he shouldn't even associate with him in his mind maybe, the Samaritan is the one that God is using to teach the Jewish lawyer. The Samaritan is the one that God is teaching the people of Israel through, and in this case, the lawyer passes the test. When Jesus asks, he's willing to admit, no, the Samaritan is more important in this story than I am, even though he's from an ethnic group that maybe my culture says I shouldn't pay attention to. He passed the test. I failed it. I want to ask how you did with the test today. I know I set you up a little bit, but what was your thought as I'm telling this story? Did you immediately assume that Patrick had taken my card? Or did you see through it? How could he have taken my card? I was sitting on it in my back pocket in my wallet in the car almost our entire interaction. Did you catch? I never actually said he stole it. I said, I thought I stole it. I thought he stole it. Why did you trust a theologian instead of a guy working at Walmart? I'm no more trustworthy. Hold on, you're saying. You set me up. This doesn't show anything. This doesn't prove anything. I know, I told this story in a slanted way to make you think what I wanted you to think. And I know some of you probably didn't even fall for it. A couple of you may not have even paid attention. But some of you did fall for it. And you have to ask, why was I able to fall for this? If I had told the same story and I met Bill Gates there at the Walmart and then my card was missing, nobody would think, oh, Bill Gates stole his wallet. <laughs> why not? 
Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If I had time, I could tell you stories of rich people who steal money, either in fancy ways behind a corporation or sometimes one-on-one just for the thrill of it. And yet we automatically might say, well, this homeless man, this black man, this older man, whatever prejudice you may have, we might be more likely to assume that he stole from us and that might expose your heart. But maybe you didn't fall for it, so let me throw out a few more examples quickly. One of them is short-term missions. Many of us here in the past and many of us here in the future will be going on a short-term mission trip in the name of Christ to take specific actions of love toward people of other ethnic groups and nations, other socioeconomic classes. But when you're going on these trips, are you thinking of yourself as the hero? Or are you willing to acknowledge that they may be the ones that God is using to teach you? and to serve you, and to change you. Because oftentimes when I see mission trips happen, that's not the way that people are thinking. And my favorite example to illustrate this happened when there was an earthquake in Haiti, and a bunch of good-meaning people, well-meaning people, sent free solar panels down. They said, we'll help the people of Haiti. Their electricity's down. There's no way they have solar power down there. Let's take specific actions of love. But you know what? All the solar companies in Haiti ended up suffering because of it. Because who's going to buy solar power from Haiti when you can get it free, shipped overseas from Europe. The assumption that Europeans were better than the Haitians there hurt Haitians, even as Europeans were trying to act in love. Because when you take specific actions in love, but you think you're better than the person you're serving, you're going to end up hurting them and not loving them. You don't have to travel for this to be true. We fail the Samaritan test today as faculty, staff, and administrators when we thank God for sending us students from around the world so that we can evangelize to them, but we don't also thank God for sending us students from around the world so they can teach us, so we can benefit from their spiritual gifts. And if we don't recognize that, we fail the Samaritan test. So what do we do with this? I'm going to leave you with three challenges. First, I want to challenge you to be honest. We like to talk about racism and prejudice and discrimination and sexism, but it's much harder to name the suffering that people may have experienced, even in this community, or to name your own shortcomings. Christians don't often take time to name specifics and say why they're wrong. Let's change that. Challenge two, I want to ask you all to think, who is your Samaritan? What group is your culture suspicious of? When you get together with your family for holidays, what group is your crazy uncle saying negative things about? Because it's important that you identify those groups. You may not realize your subconscious assumptions, but if you know how your culture is shaping you, then you can fight against it before you're exposed like I was. So once you've identified your Samaritan, learn about that group. Find out their culture. Learn their heroes. Learn their strengths. And learn where people like you, or maybe you yourself, have hurt that group. And third, once you've identified those biases and are trying to overcome them, I challenge you to take specific action to combat racism or xenophobia or any other form of discrimination or hardship that you may encounter. If we do those things, I think we're a step closer to passing the Samaritan test. Will you recognize that God has chosen someone from across a major social boundary to be the center of his work? Will you take specific actions of love even across these boundaries? I hope the answer to these questions today is yes. But if it's no, I hope you'll make a change. 
And I hope you'll be honest with yourself when asking these questions. Let's pray. Father, as we have been called to be your people, a people of all nations and tribes and tongues, I know that we have fallen short and that I have fallen short due to sin. Help me to repent and where others need to help them to repent. For those who have been the victims of discrimination, Lord, I pray for your justice and your healing. And Lord, may we all go forth as people who are able to pass this Samaritan test. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll stand for a benediction. It's coming from Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in Christ Jesus that, all, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You're dismissed.